I believe heaven will be a wonderful, glorious place. I believe there'll be real streets of gold, that there will literally be gates of pearl, that there'll be walls of jasper. I believe I'll see Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and Peter and hosts of loved ones that are already gone home to be with Jesus. But the greatest part of heaven will be the Lord himself. We're going to see him. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Revelation, and today we move into chapter 5 in a message entitled, The Lamb and the Scroll. In our last chapter, we began an in-depth look at heaven, and as we work our way through Revelation, we'll be getting a greater understanding of this wonderful place. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy clarifies some of the misconceptions people have of heaven based on extra-biblical material they may have read. And we'll see that the Bible all by itself tells us more about heaven than we could ever imagine. A very much talked about book that I am often asked about on the Bible line, our call-in talk show on Tuesdays, and questions come in from all over the country. One of the questions concerns a book written some years back called Heaven is for Real. It's about a four-year-old boy, Colton Burpo, who uh, supposedly dies on the operating table. He goes to heaven, comes back, tells his daddy, who's a physician, all about it, and his dad writes a book about it. And now they have books and study aids and DVD series and all kinds of stuff based on the, the imagination of a four-year-old child. And unfortunately, evangelical presses are ready to go ahead and publish it because it makes them millions of dollars. It's very, very sad. It sells like hotcakes. And yet, it's a shallow brand of Christianity that goes against a principle that Jesus taught and the rest of the New Testament affirms. Do you remember on that occasion when Jesus encountered Nicodemus He's speaking to him about how to be saved, how to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, and about the truths of heaven. And he reminds Nicodemus that he speaks with absolute authority. Why? Because no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is, no one goes up to heaven and then comes back according to Jesus and tells you about heaven. Why? Because it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You don't die and go to heaven and come back. There's a fixed gulf. It's a permanent place between heaven and hell that you cannot come back from until you come back with Jesus at his second coming. Jesus is saying, listen, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come from heaven. None of your earthly teachers, Nicodemus, can really teach you about heaven. None of them have been there, but that's actually my home. That's where I came from. Therefore, my testimony carries full weight in what I say to you about the second birth you need to heed. In other words, books like Heaven is for Real and scores others like them are based on erroneous information. If they go beyond the Scripture, if they add or subtract to the Scripture, they are violating a principle that this book will close to. And God gives a severe warning to those who would add or subtract to his word. And so studying these mystical accounts is just plain wrong. Even on our own radio station, I was so irked one day, I called in because one of the national hosts was interviewing someone who had this experience about going to heaven. 
And the rationale was, listen, John had a vision of heaven. He wrote about it. Paul had a vision of heaven. He wrote about it. Why can't someone else write about it? Because they're not apostles. They wrote about it because God dictated for them to write about it. And to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ with your own eyes. You had to have been personally selected by Him to be an apostle. And if those two things were true, then it would be affirmed by unique signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So there are no apostles today and no one who can write about heaven with authority except those who have given us the New Testament. Now, you should want to know about heaven. God tells us in Colossians, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Sit at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In 2 Corinthians 4, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In Philippians 3, we are reminded for our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. We ought to be concerned about heaven. We ought to know about it. And these two chapters, 4 and 5, crack the door on it. We'll do a full study of it when we come to the last two chapters. According to Hebrews chapter 11, our perspective of faith needs to be based on God's Word. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, we are told that those who have an authentic biblical faith are strangers and foreigners on this earth. And so in Hebrews 11, 14, it says that they are seeking another homeland. This is not our home. We are to be responsible people in it, but this is not our final destiny. We are not this life only people. And so in Hebrews eleven sixteen, speaking of these men and women of faith, he said, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. I think God's ashamed to call a lot of people his kids because of some of the things they're embracing. But these men and women of faith, he was not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. And that city, of course, is the new Jerusalem, the very capital of heaven that, again, we'll study in chapters 21 and 22. It's the final resting place of all those who know the Lord. But you cannot gain, my point is, you cannot gain a better understanding of heaven than what you find here in the Word of God. Now, if I were preaching the highlights of Revelation, I would probably skip the first seven verses or just briefly touch on them and go to the second half of the chapter. But we're going through every verse because it's all given by inspiration of God, and it's important. It's not an easy section, but it's a section we need to understand because it will set the groundwork and foundation for many other things we're going to study in the Revelation. I hope you found it. Chapter 5, begin following in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals." 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Let me set the context, especially for those of you who are with us for the first time. We learned in Revelation 1-7 that the theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back on the clouds in glory. And in Revelation 1-19, we learned that God gave us a divine outline in which to understand the book. Revelation 1-19 says, Therefore, write the things that you have seen. And so after a brief introduction in verses 9 through 20, he writes about what he had seen, this vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ. Write the things that you have seen and the things which are, that is, what's present right then when John is alive in 95 AD. So he writes of seven literal, actual churches that are functioning, that in many ways are representative of churches throughout the ages, and that every church could identify more with one church than another in terms of their spiritual health. And then he goes on and he says, and write the things that will take place after these things. So when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, you know you're coming to a new section because the last three words of 119, two in Greek, metatata, are the first two wor three words in uh, Revelation 4.1. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. If you were here last week, we studied that this begins the time frame after the church is raptured. God opens the door and He lets the church in. And we saw from Scripture that 24 is a representative number. I gave you a couple of examples from the Old Testament. The 24 elders are representative of a multitude of people called the church, the body of Christ. The church has been let in. They are in the mezzanine of heaven, and they are going to observe and watch what is going to unfold upon the earth. And so in chapters 4 and 5, we've entered into the throne room of God, when we come to chapter 6, 4 and 5 is a preparation for what's going to happen in 6. In chapter 6, the judgments of God are going to begin to be executed all the way through the 19th chapter until the second coming of Jesus. It is such a traumatic, unbelievable time that Jesus could say, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is never given to exaggeration. When you read chapters 6 through 19, you don't want to be left behind. You do not want to miss the rapture and be left behind. Now, while it is possible in your unbelief, or having never heard the gospel, if you were to fall into that category, but none here would, while it is possible to miss the rapture, it is impossible to miss the second coming. First comes the rapture, the Bible teaches, the catching up of the church. The door in heaven is open. And so you will not see the church mentioned from chapter 4 all the way until you come to the 19th chapter. You will read of saints, but those are not church saints. Those are tribulation saints. First comes the rapture, then comes the second coming. The rapture is one event, as this slide illustrates and helps you distinguish the two. The rapture of Jesus comes for His church. 
We meet the Lord in the air where He takes us to heaven. That time frame is called the day of Christ in the Bible. It's distinctly different than when Jesus comes back with His church. First, He comes for us. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive shall be caught up. We will meet the Lord in the air. That is so different from the passages that describe He will come, plant His feet on the Mount of Olives. Even at the ascension of Christ, the angel said He's coming in the exact same way He left. He's coming to the very mountain that He ascended to heaven from. So one speaks of the catching up of the church. The other speaks of Christ coming back to the earth. And it's important that you distinguish those two events. And if you miss the rapture, you're in big trouble. If you think you're going to set things in order once all these millions of genuine born-again Christians are gone, you will see that will not happen according to what we're going to study. So John's taken to heaven. And he has given a heavenly perspective of what is going to happen on the earth. The church is gone because the focus of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecies, the final seven years, concerns the people of Israel. And of course, if you look at what is happening on the earth from a purely human perspective, it will cause fear, doubt, confusion, consternation of all kinds. But if you begin to understand what is happening on the earth from the divine perspective, and we're going to have front row seats when this thing unfolds, then you begin to rest and see what God is about and what He is doing. Now, when you get to heaven, as this passage, this whole chapter is going to affirm, affirm Jesus is the center of it all. He is the central focus of heaven. Now, I believe heaven will be a wonderful, glorious place. I believe there'll be real streets of gold, that there will literally be gates of pearl, that there'll be walls of jasper. I believe I'll see Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and Peter and hosts of loved ones that are already gone home to be with Jesus. But the greatest part of heaven will be the Lord himself. We're going to see him. And he, in this chapter, is going to set the stage for what is going to happen in chapter 6 when we begin to study the seal judgments, beginning with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So this morning, as you can see, the title of the message is The Lamb and the Scroll. And there are just three simple truths I want us to think about this morning. The first concerns this mysterious scroll. There's a mysterious scroll that's mentioned beginning now in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, we've already identified from chapter 4 that the one sitting on the throne, of course, is God the Father. And he holds in his right hand a book, a scroll, written, the Bible says here, inside and on the back, or you could say on both sides. Now, it's not a book, it's not a codex like you have in your lap this morning, a book bound with pages. Those really had not come into popular use yet. With a few rare wooden and wax exceptions, all the books at this point were scrolls. And so in the margin of the NASB, they render it scroll. And that's literally what the Greek text says. This is a scroll. It's a parchment. And they made these ancient parchments from papyrus reeds or sometimes animal skins. They would take the reeds and they would lay them flat and they would hammer them together and 
pound it and pound it, and it would typically be smooth on one side and very rough on the other. And typically, you only wrote on one side. But this particular scroll, God is writing on two sides. It's not a problem. God can make a, a scroll, I'm sure, that is perfectly smooth as modern-day paper. And he writes on both sides to underscore and to emphasize that the message is full, it's complete, and it is very, very important. In fact, God will not simply speak the truths that we're going to see. He writes out these truths in indelible ink, as it were, so that people can see they are permanent. Much like Pilate, when he wrote the sign above the cross of Jesus, and they said, oh, change that. That's not true. He says, what I have written, I have written. And what the Lord writes on this scroll, no puny little mortal man will be able to change. In addition, this scroll, the Bible says, is sealed up with seven seals. Now, here's a picture of an ancient scroll. This is actually the Isaiah scroll. If you go with me to Israel, you'll see the Dead Sea Scrolls on display. And um, they were usually, again, written on one side. This scroll is written on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. Here's a, one illustrator who tries to picture it like this, but that's really not accurate as you read the text. But I don't blame him. I don't know how you can picture it. Uh, Steve, my, um, one of my graphics guys, uh, pictured it like this. Um, basically, what was done is they wrote the scroll on both sides, and then they rolled it, and they sealed it. And they rolled it some more, they sealed it. They rolled it some more, and they sealed it. And so you've got these seven, as it were, external slash internal scrolls. And on it is the will of God. Now remember, we saw in the opening verse to the revelation that this revelation of Jesus Christ is communicated. Uh, the uh, King James says it is signified. And it's the same word that is used and translated in John's gospel as sign. Jesus did many other signs, samion. And so he communicates that the revelation is given through a number of signs. It is signified to him. And sometimes it's difficult to understand what the sign means, especially if you are not familiar with the Old Testament. So we have to dig and we have to study. Some of the signs, it's no mystery at all. Uh, because the next verse or a couple of verses later actually interpret the sign for us. But as we noted already, of the 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 of them have direct allusions to the Old Testament. And so you have to go back and say, oh yeah, I see what's going on here. And he is assuming that people have a certain knowledge, not to mention he is writing to God's bondservants. This book is not for anyone. It is for God's people. And it is assumed, I think, at least to some degree, that God's people will have a heart to dig for the truth, to mine the Scriptures like a man would seek silver or gold, to use Solomon's allusion in the book of Proverbs. And so uh, you might want to write out in the margin Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah 32, and then turn there, if you will. And the prophet Jeremiah, God is instructing his prophet before they are carried away to Babylon to buy a uh, piece of land in the territory of Benjamin. Uh, God dictated where the various tribes were to stay and be, and, and he was to buy a piece of land for 17 shekels. We studied in the prophet Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, 
was going to come down and be an instrument of God, an instrument of judgment to carry the people away for 70 years. And I'm having you turn to Jeremiah 32. If you're new, just find Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the right. You will soon come to Jeremiah. It's helpful to illustrate the importance of this scroll because this is not any old scroll. We're going to see that the scroll that we're studying here in the Revelation is the title deed to the earth. And so there would be scrolls that were not sealed. When a scroll was sealed, it was like, this seal has authority behind it, so you better be careful. You better heed before you crack that seal because you're dealing with the authority behind the seal. Ancient Roman wills in title deeds have actually been found, some that have been unopened, one in particular about 30 years ago that was found with seven seals. It was a miraculous thing that it was still intact. And so, for instance, if you had a Roman deed or will or title deed, seven people would be engaged in sealing with their signet rings the particular scroll, and for that will to even be read, all seven people had to be present. But I just want to illustrate something for you. Now, remember, God is speaking um, to the prophet Jeremiah, your people are going to be carried away for 70 years. We studied that in Daniel 9. Remember, the end of the 70 years is coming. Daniel opens the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah, the one we're reading, and he learns that the time of captivity would be 70 years. He's thinking, oh, it's almost over. How does Daniel interpret prophecy? Literally. He said 70 years in his mind meant 70 years. And so while there are symbols, you still find the meaning of the symbol. And once you find the meaning of the symbol, you interpret it literally. So when Satan is called the great red dragon, he's not like a lot of artists picture him as a dragon with a pitchfork and a forked tail. He, it's describing his ferocious, evil, wicked nature. But once you understand the meaning of the symbol, then you literally believe him. And so here in Jeremiah, God has him buy this piece of property. Why? Because God said it's 70 years, your people are going to come back. And here's a piece of property that needs to be redeemed. And I want to underscore by promise and by your action that I'm going to do exactly what I said. By the way, how do you interpret the Bible the way we interpret it? God created within the Bible a principle by which you interpret the Scripture. When you see Daniel interacting with Jeremiah or Jesus interacting with the prophets or the apostles interacting with Jesus or the Old Testament, then you begin to understand that they applied a literal, plain, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Word of God. All right, Jeremiah 32, verse 9. I bought the field, which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son. And I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahaseah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses, who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, 
and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be brought in the, bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God. We sing this. Matt's led us in this before. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now drop down to verse 24. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it. That's Nebuchadnezzar coming to capture Jerusalem. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. Because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and what you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses. Although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. That's why they're being judged, among other reasons. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing evil in my sight from their youth, for the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger, in my wrath from the day they had built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. Now listen, verses 36 and 37. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. So follow it. He's got a legal document. They're identical. One is open, one is sealed. So when they would come back 70 years later and they would dig it up, they could easily see someone didn't just plant these here. Here's the open one that dictates precisely what God said as to whose property this is. And here's an unbroken seal from a signet 70 years before indicating the terms of this. And Jeremiah was redeeming property just like God had commanded in Leviticus chapter 25. And so houses and fields and vineyards will be brought, bought in the land. He is underscoring that there was a payment that needed to be made in order to be able to purchase this piece of property, and it's sealed with a signet ring. 
Now, that's a common function that they did in Jewish culture. And in Roman culture, in extra-biblical literature, they have found, as I mentioned just 30 years ago, a seven-sealed document, unbroken, unopened, miraculously. But they would use them for a human will, but they would also use them for a land grant. But now we are coming to a text of Scripture where there's a seven-sealed scroll where someone is not going to buy a piece of property. The one who is going to open this scroll, as we're going to see in the sixth chapter and following, is being given the title, Deed to the Earth. To listen again to today's study entitled, The Lamb and the Scroll, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV12. Join us again tomorrow in our ongoing study of the Revelation as we search the Scriptures.